The bush is dense and unforgiving. And the boys are on a quest for vengeance. I'm the Frightened Gale, Matisse Van Rossum. I'm Ben Sheets, and uh, did you know that toilets flush in the opposite direction in Australia? Oh, shit. I did know that. Oh, wow. Hi, I'm Cleveland Mosier, and uh, I made a mistake, guys. I threw the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, shit. Welcome to the pod, people. And today, we're going to be talking about a different kind of horror. A more unconventional kind of horror. Usually, when we're talking about horror, we're talking about the intangible. The spooky ghost. The scary skeleton. The Swedish hippie. But this time, we're going to be talking about the horror of something much, much greater. We're talking about the horror of Western colonialism. Horrific it was. Oh boy. We're going to be talking today about The Nightingale, a film released internationally in 2018, but it didn't get its uh, U.S. release until this year, 2019. Uh, It is written and directed by Jennifer Kent of The Babadook. And it stars, uh, I'm probably going to butcher these names, I apologize in advance, uh, Aisling Frankiosi, Sam Claflin, Bekali Ganambar, and Damon Harriman. It is set in 1825 as Claire, a young Irish convict woman, chases a British officer through the rugged Tasmanian wilderness, bent on revenge for a terrible act of violence he committed against her family. On the way... She enlists the services of an aboriginal tracker named Billy, who is also marked by trauma from his own violence-filled past. Rose-colored glasses, this film does not have. (laughs) I tell you what, these are not the good old days. Uh, I'm going to start broad strokes. Uh, If you can't tell by the shakiness in my voice, I just watched this movie. All three of us just did. The credits just rolled, and and we're recording. Uh, I'm harrowed. There is little question in my mind whether this is technically a horror film or not. This is definitely a horror movie. I don't tend to watch too many, like, rape-revenge films. I think there was a time before on the podcast where I actually kind of had the wrong idea and saw the genre as, like, somewhat sexist uh, because I was relatively misinformed. I'll be very open and honest about that. Ben, I think you corrected me, was saying, like, actually a good number of rape-revenge films have been directed by, like, female, like, feminist directors, and they make very poignant statements, and they're not exploitative. You want to talk about a primo example of that. I mean, this this film is that. For anyone, anyone who requires it, like, big old trigger warning um, on this film. Yeah. yeah. Big old trigger warning. Um, <laughs> well, it's funny. It's, it's funny you mention that, because on both IMDb and Letterboxd, this movie technically isn't labeled as a horror movie. But in a lot of ways, it does follow that rape-revenge genre without feeling particularly exploitative. The key is realism, Um, if you were to ask me. This film saves itself from that, and even though, like, the core plotline is she is raped, she seeks revenge, beyond that, it it holds so few of those hallmarks. It doesn't follow the very much the the typical form of a rape-revenge film. It has some of the same themes. I I knew very little about this film going in, uh, except the the basic IMDb premise, which which I just read a couple of minutes ago, and I was expecting a much different film. I was expecting more of a standard kind of uh, rape revenge where, you know, she is wronged and she becomes then a total uh, rage-fueled badass and, like, hunts down the people who wronged her and wreaks terrible vengeance. And that's not really what happens Yeah, there's, in this there's movie no, like, all. traps that are set in this movie, mm-hmm. you know, like... And it, she, and realistically, she remains emotionally quite vulnerable throughout the whole thing. She has conviction and she's driven by the desire for revenge, but but uh, she is extremely out of her element. I saw a lot of more influences from Westerns and yes. even mm-hmm. arguably, I would say, in some ways, buddy cop movies, especially stuff sure. like In the Heat of the Night, where it's very race relations heavy. And it's, you know, two people who are at odds with each other kind of coming together by the end. I think what makes that work is just kind of the seriousness of the the film it is very uh intense and yeah. doesn't pull punches by well any like means. you like you mentioned it's not really a quote-unquote like 
classic horror film. Like you said, IMDb and Letterboxd don't even qualify it as such, but... Jennifer Kent uh, is a horror film director. You know, her last film was The Babadook, unquestionably a horror film. And though this film isn't what you would expect from a horror film, I was horrified for a lot of it and uh, probably more emotionally shaken by scenes in this film than some of the other uh, just straight-up horror films that we've watched this year. Yeah. Uh, So I think that it is... Uh, I think that it is deserving of of the uh, horror descriptor, at, at the very least. Quite. If, Quite. Even if it doesn't fit the typical conventions of the genre. Another point, moving into uh, how this film addresses race, we live, you know, in a time right now where, like, race-related commentary is very poignant in cinema. We see a lot of examples of, of like, that commentary done well, and we see a lot of examples of this commentary done poorly. This is so in my camp for done extremely well, Uh, considering, too, that like they're at odds with each other, like they have to like, you know, find common ground through their their hardship and all that. Like a lot of those the the beats of this film would have set me up to believe had I heard them in advance that it wouldn't have been handled all that well. But I always felt like there was characterized like justification in any sequence and that they were driven to those directions by legitimate means in the film. I found the movie to be extremely believable, even during some of the more, like, extreme moments. I think you're right that it is believable and that the the racial divide themes are handled pretty well. That being said, I did find a lot of it quite predictable. Sure. At least in the sense that, you know, she, Claire hires uh, Billy to, you know, be her guide through the Tasmanian wilderness to track, you know, the officer who has uh, so horribly wronged her. And at the beginning, as they're setting out, you know, she doesn't trust him. She's keeping a gun at his back. She's, most of the film, she's calling him boy. Yeah. And it's like, as soon as I saw that, I, I you mentioned it's like, oh, good, she's not a Mary Sue and she's not the only, because non, she's not the only non-racist character yeah. in, in in the movie because by the time that she shows herself to be a racist by that point in, in the film we we can only see her as this this figure who's been savaged yeah. you know by these officers mm-hmm. to then show that she's flawed you know yeah, like sure. that that she is like you're like outwardly racist you know towards this guy i was like oh you know like thank god yeah like you were saying like right. i was i was glad that she wasn't just like a purely likable person and that she wasn't going to be like on a pedestal for the rest of the sure film. and i and i and it I, gave I, her an arc even though we knew where the arc was well that's, going. that's the, exactly you know, like, the story beats are are pretty laid out and they're things that we've seen before you know from the beginning with you know with her calling him boy and stuff like that it's like by the end, they're going to be the best of friends. Yeah, sure. They're going to they're um, going to realize that they have more in common than they thought, and they're going to come together and they're going to succeed together. Which is exactly exactly what happens. What happens. Certainly. That, that being said, even though it was predictable, I thought the execution was great. Right. Even though I kind of knew where it was going a lot of the time, I felt good about it. One yeah. thing I want to say before getting too far into this is I want to tread a little lightly with the, the racism stuff just because sure. we're coming from the lens of white Americans and this is a movie in Australia yeah. about Aborigine people and you know, our lens is from a race relation standpoint of the U.S. And I I feel like while it's handled pretty well in this film, we don't necessarily have the clearest picture of the history of what's going down in this film. I, I almost feel like at times it feels like a simplified version of race relations in terms of, you know, we don't really see too much of Billy's history. We see him do some rituals and some tradition, but most of the film is from Claire's perspective. Sure. Certainly. That's a good point to bring up, for sure. I grew up, you know, watching, like, a lot of historical stuff. My dad is a historian, and I, I love media that is set in this era, but not in this location. Or I I haven't seen that much that's in sure. this location. I certainly 
uh, do enjoy it. I, I love historical works, but my knowledge of Australia and Tasmania and the events uh, surrounding like the colonization are extremely limited. So from well, all of us, like we are putting that out and there, that part we, of the our reason, expectations are limited. And, part of that reason you know. I bring that up is I had pretty limited knowledge of this movie going in. I did know one thing, though, is that it was pretty controversial when it was first shown at Cannes. A lot of people saw it as conflating feminism with colonialism. I don't know if I necessarily I agree, see that. but I would like to discuss that a little bit because it is through the lens of rape revenge. It does have kind of a very feminist viewpoint, but I don't think it necessarily conflates those. I think it's pretty clear that the position of this film is that colonialism bad for well, yeah, like, literally yeah. everyone. <laughs> for yeah, for everybody. All parties. It's like, not good. Yeah. yeah, I well cuz I mean Claire is a Irish convict. Right. You know, and she's also, suffering at the hands of colonialism. Right. You know, the Irish well. the Irish have been suffering at the hands of the British for hundreds of years. And in that sense it's more of a an issue of class rather than race, but in in the case of, you know, this film in uh, Australia or more specifically Tasmania where this film is set is you know seen very heavily through the lens of race because we see how abysmally the soldiers and hell just like even the 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 colonialists you know the people in the villages uh treat the aboriginal people that is what what ends up bonding billy and claire ultimately is that the british are bad to both of us so we have more in common than we thought white men have taken from both of us yeah. the director is as far as i understand like a a white woman yes. like she's yeah. she's writing like no, a jennifer, perspective yeah, no jennifer yeah no jennifer ken is not is not uh, aboriginal yeah she's she's writing like a a, a perspective that that is viable i, I think well yeah she's it, she's writing it from the lens of of, of, a, of a white woman and of you know that is what she is. Mm -hmm. So I, I think from from that perspective, it, it it makes sense. I I did not conflate the feminist views of this film with colonialism at all. No. I, I didn't. That's, and, well, and to be clear, too, like you, you see like uh, a good number of like kind colonialists in this movie, too. And well, it, 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 fewer, fewer than the bad ones. Well, but there, because there the are... villain takes up the, the majority of the screen time because that's our story is very singular here. We're just seeing those glimpses of it. Sure. But like, I it's mean, because it's so inherent in the culture of that time. Right. But but the thing is, is like they come across brutality everywhere. Like, yeah, we're seeing most of it from our very singular villain but when they're traveling those bandits come upon them in the night and try to rape claire and then billy saves her uh we see the slavers multiple times who are following them who uh once again try to rape claire and she gets away from them and then when we see new slavers again at the end you know they uh just murder in cold blood their aboriginal prisoners because they they try to stand up for themselves so i don't think that well but like, those are all the bad ones, but there are good people in the film as well, like my, to help her out along the way. My point is that there's fewer though, Cleveland. Well, that's, of course, that's it's, all, a, it's a dark horror film. That's well, all and I'm the saying. thing is, yeah. they help her. They don't really help him outside of the one, the elderly, elderly couple, couple, couple near the very well, and, end, and the Irish couple at the beginning as well. They, they have nothing to do with Billy. Yeah, they try to stop her from going after the officer. They're kind to her, but they're not particularly kind to to Billy or anything there are people who help but that even <coughs> so billy is still the outcast people are willing to help claire because she's a white woman correct but they're still not willing to give the same courtesy to billy until the elderly couple towards the very end after they've seen so much horror and that's why that's what makes that that couple such a breath of fresh air when they even come up on her first thing claire does is pull up her gun and say don't don't you touch the black you know uh and he's like i'm not gonna get on the cart and like you look hungry and it's like whoa shit wow this is not what any of us have been expecting at this point yeah. you know they've met pretty much only cruelty up until that point yeah and, and, well, I, and even I think then, that, that makes you know, it such a poignant and that's why it's such an effectively poignant statement right that those exactly. people were there exactly you know well even then you know the the wife wasn't 
that right. into it either. Yeah, I thought that was great. It was literally just the husband just the that was man, the only yeah. redeemable colonialist in that respect. Which, which is like a really fascinating dynamic too. And you don't see that very often. Like usually it's just like the kind couple. But like saying like the one like like the wife was still like very outwardly racist was yeah. was interesting. Again, I want to tread on very lightly with the stuff like saying there there were good colonialists in the colonialism film was is evil like and horrible. saying yeah, yeah, yeah. there's there were good slave owners. It's it's not a good look. No, 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 no. no. I, I agree with you. But that there are a handful of kind people in the film spread out amongst the just endless. I think dr- I think the, of- the better way to put it is the film does a good job of creating human characters. They don't feel like caricatures. Sure. Quite. You know, the slight exception to that is the group is, of villains. Is the lieutenant, especially. Yeah. He is... Uh, An outright sociopath. Yeah, he is He is just insanely evil. Yeah. I, first off, fully agree that the things that he does in that film are a snidely whiplash level of evil. I would also reckon, personally, that that sort of person absolutely exists like sure. it and it, it also down to his station it is believable he's an officer which is very specifically like in colonialist like military systems like they're sort of the bridging of the gap class wise and so you you often see like these officer characters that like sort of see themselves as above the rest but they're really not you right. know like everyone's at the same level like at that point and it's it's where you kind of breach into like a different class system sociopaths tend to ascend social ladders in that respect. So him fitting that station made a great deal of sense. I thought that, that was fucking fascinating, frankly, like like how well he fit into that society as like a, a textbook sociopath. Yeah, I think that you could say that his acts of evil are maybe a bit over-exaggerated, but I don't think that the way he behaves is necessarily cartoonish, like, like a snidely whiplash kind of thing, because mm-hmm. he's not like a villain to the extent that he's like monologuing and like twirling his mustache you know no. even when he uh shoots the the kid at the end you know he's just like i just can't stand the noise of it all you know like he's just uh he himself is so overwhelmed that he's really just letting his baser self take over the way i interpreted that is he doesn't even consider the kid a human. It's right, an it, exactly. You know, and he does this multiple times in the movie. He does this during the the scene with the baby, for example. He calls the baby an it as well. Yeah. And and it's it's crying is what is constantly infuriating him. It is literally the noise that just drives him to a breaking point. I saw that as more of an evil because he's so dehumanizing well yeah no he's extremely like cleveland said he's a textbook sociopath but in a way that i believe that people exist oh yes yeah yeah. not he's not he's not a cartoon character This, this character doesn't feel like yeah he's he's a villain for the sake of the film needing to have one he he feels very set in his environment. He feels more like a study of sociopathy than he does a um just a a fulcrum. Yeah, and I and I, I appreciated that uh, from a writing perspective. Like uh, all of the events that occur had a solid degree of thought and justification put into them. Yeah, every event. I'd be curious to see if y'all felt the same. Everything I saw happen, like it felt like an extreme, and it felt very justified. And yeah, well, that, that I mean, keeps you hooked. I think it's I think it's meant to. like really try to fucking drive you down you use the word harrowing it's an extremely harrowing experience there's just one constant cruelty after another the movie's two hours 15 minutes it's it's a draining experience and those little moments of uh of you know genuine kindness are are very refreshing in a, in a good way. I feel like it's uh, it's intentionally, you know, holding you underwater and letting you come up every now and then for a breath of fresh air before shoving your head back down. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the interesting thing is to put a capstone on the villain. He's a sociopath in our perspective because he is so cruel to the white people of this movie. But when you think about it, the cruelty of 
a lot of these characters towards the Aborigine people make them equally sociopath. Yeah, no, totally. You know? I, I agree. You're absolutely right. He's the main villain. He is the symbol of colonialism, the idea of dehumanizing everyone around him. Mm-hmm. You know, even at the beginning, he said, you know, he says about Claire, like when her husband comes in, he's like, she's my wife. She's paid her due. And he's like, no, she's my property and I can do whatever I want. He is that that overarching representation of the dehumanization that colonialism brings. And we're just seeing in the film that it affects everybody. It can be directed at everyone. And I think in that sense, like I said before, it's like a it's a class thing, you know, with a race thing wrapped up in it. And we even see how he how he treats the sergeant who is also a a despicable human character. He's more savage and stupid and bestial than the lieutenant is, but the lieutenant even treats him like dog shit too, mm-hmm. you know? When he when he almost shoots him and the boy says no, he's like you owe your life to a child. Never forget that. Uh, it's it's crazy how just well thought out like so much of the the period related things seems to be in this movie. And while like I don't have much knowledge of that location in time, I do recognize like the the societal like trends and some of the the stereotypes in films that are often uh, portrayed out in uh, period films. And one of the biggest ones is hygiene. And this movie gets hygiene very right. <laughs> like, I, that sounds like a really small, silly thing, but, like, so often you get, like, the peasants that are, like, literally wallowing in mud. When we see that in the film, it's it's towards the climax. Like, when she's just, like, covered in filth, like, in the woods. Yeah, because she's, like, she's been trekking the, for days. The bush for and days. you see how, like, regular passersby see her. Um, and it, it's it's... I I thought that was like really poignant because at the beginning even then she's like she's she's uh, you know essentially like a convict slave and she's still very pristine very clean and her husband you know is like has good hygiene as well all of the the people who are like at convict status are all like wearing clean clothes and practicing good hygiene and you see the same too with like the aboriginals as well like they all feel like from what I understand like like tribal societies which are very hygiene oriented I thought that was fucking rad you usually see like all the peasants covered in filth in in those sorts of pieces and it was it was nice to to see that in a lot of ways the the period element of this film reminded me a lot of the revenant um in terms of the you know focus on accuracy and like you said hygiene is a big part of it as well and obviously the trekking through the wilderness uh leads to very similar aesthetics it's a it's an epic journey through the wilderness but i think it's done excellent in this um i think it's less of a spectacle. It, in it feels more... very immersive mm-hmm. because it feels very period accurate. Um, one thing I noticed that I wanted to get your guys' opinion on sure. is much like the lighthouse, this film was also in four by three. Was it four by three? It was four by three. It was yep. definitely a different aspect ratio, but it seemed like it had less space on the side or less space on the sides than the lighthouse. I think did. W- what it, it is is there were so many wide shots that it felt less claustrophobic. That is true. The lighthouse was very was very good at that. Um, yeah, I I in yeah. I noticed immediately that it was in a different aspect ratio, just a it, larger one. Is what you thought? Bother? Yeah. yeah, I thought I I didn't think it was as small. But I mean, the only times I've seen the lighthouse so far is in theaters, and you know we watched mm-hmm. this on a considerably smaller screen, so I'm it probably threw off my perspective a little bit. I was bothered by it at first, and then I got so wrapped up in the movie that I no longer noticed. I've been watching Star Trek a lot. Like I'm used to watching shows in that format i think it's it, a fine aspect yeah. ratio it draws attention I, I to itself it. it draws attention to itself <laughs> on our modern screens because they're so wide uh but you know for fucking ever that is that was the common framing for everything so what do you guys think the intent behind that was i think maybe it was just to immerse people in the period a little bit more that sounds kind of weird but like you said, it's a bit of a dated medium, so mm-hmm. it automatically evokes an older time. Sure. That's how I view it. And, uh, I'm to agree you know, that. it does in some ways emphasize the, the starkness of the wilderness just because you're so tight into it. 
you don't have these wide shots. But at the same time, it's not necessarily as claustrophobic. I think it's less effective than in The Lighthouse. Uh, like you said on, on our episode about The Lighthouse Cleave, you didn't think it would work if it was uh, in black and white and widescreen or if it was in 4x3 and color. That is true. And this is in 4x3 four four by by three three and, and color. color. And I I agree with you, Ben, in that it evokes a a sort of older aesthetic. It, it, it takes you, you know, and puts you back in the past to an extent, but... With something like The Lighthouse, which is in black and white, you know, it's in the 1890s. It's like Thomas Edison is, you know, starting to experiment with film and stuff like it. It feels more of the time. I feel like and the this intent is, was more there in The Lighthouse. Yeah, this than is in, this. in this is in 1825 in the Tasmanian wilderness, like the idea of of film as a medium is like so far removed from this setting that like to do to do something to like so readily draw attention to to that i i don't know what the intent the intent was behind it and i don't know if it worked i think that the film works very well in spite of it though because i i like i said i stopped i stopped noticing Mm -hmm. because i was too engrossed in what was happening Mm -hmm. the acting is so good and the characters are so good that like i i stopped giving a shit but like for the first 10 minutes i'm like what is with this aspect ratio? <laughs> I, I still want to say that I feel that way about The Lighthouse, even after watching this film. I don't think that The the Lighthouse would have necessarily worked as well if it was in a wider format in black and white or if it was in uh, color in that format. I, I think that it stylistically it works very well for the bleakness and coldness of that film and the singularity of, of the use of light for The Lighthouse it sure. works yeah. for that film. I've for definitely this film, come around on fine. it more for uh, The Lighthouse. But well, that's is... the thing. Like we mentioned, you know, it feels like the intent is much more there in The Lighthouse. You know, yes. it's very clear why it was shot like right. that. Unlike, also, The Lighthouse is a much more stylized film. The framing is is much more poignant. Like it's a it's an oriented movie. The, there's all the crazy fish stuff and you know the playing with time. It's a a much I don't like to use the word wacky, but it, it does played a lot more uh, like fantasy sort of related things. Whereas this film is trying very hard to just be set in realism. This is the kind of film where the intent of the form is to make you forget about the form. Yes. Like you said, to be immersed in it, uh, which I think it does a great job of. Something like The Lighthouse that is more stylized, you're meant to be struck by the imagery. You know, you're, you know, you're supposed to take notice of, of how beautifully and strangely shot it is. This is a left turn for Jennifer Kent for only her second film. Uh, year of the sophomore bump continues, boys. Yeah, wow, well, uh, 2019. Yeah, this is a wow. very, very different from the Babadook. I don't know if I would have recognized that they were made by the same director, except for a couple of very particular sequences, specifically Claire's dream sequence. I was na- about to nightmare say, yes. At the end, very reminiscent of the Babadook in not only the way it's shot, but also the way it's presented to have that sort of ghostly figure of comfort come to her and then become monstrous as it repeats uh, a phrase straight out of the Babadook. I thought it was great, though. I thought it was a nice little a nice little uh, creative flourish. It's like, okay, yes, here here is what I recognize of Jennifer Kent. Mm -hmm. That's that being said, I'm not upset that this film is is very different from the Babadook. I think it, it goes to show uh, that as a as an artist, Jennifer Kent has some fucking range yeah. in in what she does to go from something like the Babadook, which was you know very small and self contained, largely single location, to go to su- to a period piece that is so kind of epic and sprawling, and to to pull it off so well. I agree wholeheartedly. The nightmare sequence of like seeing our protagonist being haunted by the events that have occurred to them is like it's a scene as old as time. Yeah. But once again, it felt so justified. She has been through that 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 horrific event, and you know, like it's it's a byproduct of your PTSD to have those sorts of night terrors. Very believable. Um, and it just once again puts you into her shoes, you know, as you you suffer with her in this film. I found all of them to be effective. Well, it's funny you mentioned PTSD because I feel like that as well as trauma are the big things that tie these two films together. The Babadook yeah. and the Nightingale. Oh, yeah. Because both main characters go through 
very traumatic experiences. They and, essentially start, but each of them start their journey traumatized. Yeah, and we see the journey of them coming to terms with that and trying to find closure with that. And Absolutely. in that respect, I definitely see the progression from one to the other. While they're, you know, stylistically very different, like thematically in some respects, they're somewhat similar. You're absolutely right. I, I mean, the Babadook ends not with the destruction or the banishment of the beast, but learning to control with it and, yeah, cope, and cope with it. They both end with a, a sort of closure yeah, to, that, exactly. to that trauma. In the Nightingale, you know, they end up getting their revenge, but it's not like they've defeated colonialism. No. It's not like they've defeated, they, ha they haven't defeated the... We know the, how that story ends. We, yeah, yeah, we do. It's, it's still quite rough. Like, and so to get like any respite, right? You know, like, like played to a sense of realism is very gratifying. Right. Well, I, I liked I like too that Claire and seems needed. to Claire seems to find her peace more through realizing that she's not alone and that she has things in common with Billy and that sort of solidarity she shares with him. You know, she has that scene where she confronts the lieutenant in town after, you know, he's essentially gotten away with it. She no longer feels the need, you know, for for bloody violence. She's had her taste of that uh, with Hugo Weaving's son. Oh, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll get back to that. But, you know, she just wants to, to go and tell him to his face like even despite all of this i own myself you don't own me you know i don't need revenge and then billy takes it for her anyway yes uh because they, they sort of flip-flop you know because he uh the his uh his uncle or his adoptive uncle is uh murdered cold-heartedly by uh by the lieutenant like he murders just about everybody he comes across so billy takes his vengeance but he dies for it or we assume he will die. Well, the film ends very ambiguously yeah. in that respect. It's most likely, you know... Highly likely. He, he got shot, so... Got he, shot. He most likely... With um, a light ball. But, you know, it ends on the beach with the two of them, and it's very bittersweet in its ending because, you know, while it has kind of a, a nice closure to it, you know, the, the sun rises at the very end, she is left alone. But she has that peace of mind of the closure of the situation, even though, honestly, it's, it's still a hopeless situation for her. Right. And, you know, in a similar way, while colonialism wasn't defeated, I suppose you could argue that there's that bit of closure of understanding, at least in Claire. You know, mm -hmm. sure. Of choosing to go on in spite of everything else. You know, like you said, it's very bittersweet. It's a it's a beautiful scene at the end, but the the implications that it leaves are still quite bleak. Well, she even says herself that she's already died. Her her, her soul has died. Sure, uh, metaphorically, essentially, yeah. yeah. Like she she has so little to go on with, and that's why it's so fitting that uh, she ends with a rising sun. I mean, I was choking up over the credits, guys. Like, yeah, I was very personally moved by that. It's a, a quite moving ending. Yeah, it's powerful. I agree. I had a, a footnote. Uh, there's actually another historical point that I actually can bring up with some degree of utility, uh, and that is how people treat muskets uh, <laughs> across the board, and, and very specifically, not just like uh, this is like such this film, a you thing. It, I'm gonna let you go, yeah. but this is such <laughs> a you, you thing. Um, I'll, I'll make it brief. I, I, I oh, promise. by all but, means, have fun. Um, essentially, uh, I mean a couple of things by that. There's a great deal of awareness written in around how the muskets operate in this film, and I don't mean just like oh credit they don't fire multiple times. Good job. The film goes far above that. First off, there's a sequence where her rifle gets backwatered. Okay, that's good. Good marks on that. That's a good start. You know, because we see her go through a river, and then later on she tries to shoot someone, the rifle doesn't work. But then we see multiple characters in this movie aim high um, or low uh, in her circumstance with the, the first soldier she comes across. She goes to and shoot, and she later, automatically, yeah. like, pulls her rifle down to the ground. And you get a definite sense that it's not because of, like, the weight of it, because you see her, like, carrying it several other times. It's a natural reflex. There are accounts of 
rifle accuracy during that time period and rifleman studies. And there was a big reason why, like during certain colonial wars, the Civil War, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, you have a number of skirmishes that lasted hours of soldiers just on a field shooting at each other because no one was trying to hit each other. Modern warfare is very different in, like, when it comes to, like... Call of Duty? Modern warfare? I mean, (laughs) yes, though. Like, like close-quarter combat... No, no, it's funny. Um, (laughs) uh, Like, close-quarter-style combat is about reflex training, and we've, we've changed the way that we train our soldiers so that they can kill more easily with that sense. But when it came to, like, traditional militaries of that time, whether you were trained or not, most folks aimed high or low. It was extremely difficult to kill someone. And you see the boy, you see her, I think you see someone else at some point aim high or low. It was very gratifying because you usually don't see that. Oh, when they're running away from the farm, a farmer shoots at them. Oh, yeah. Now, again, these are also non-board barrels, so, like, also accurate to just try and shoot at someone from 30 feet away and miss. Um, That that was definitely a thing as well. Uh, Well, she didn't... she didn't but, miss. She um, didn't miss when she shot Hugo Weaving's son. She didn't. She did she was, not. She, she didn't hit, hit in the, what in the she was aiming leg. for. Yeah. And I, uh, I also loved that because like the guy had already been hitting the other leg as well. But again, yeah. it felt believable because she's aiming low. She couldn't, you know, like necessarily just like hit Mark, and uh, and so instead he gets popped in the leg. This and that's the second time she tries to shoot at him yeah. as well. And uh, that guy, like, yeah, gets shot in both legs. Like and she stabs him a bunch, and then uh, bashes his skull in with the butt of the musket. He gets uh, probably one of the worst deaths in the film. And uh, there's there's something that feels even like more impactful about it because like there's no doubt that he took part in the atrocities that were done to her but he's the only one who has a conscience about it we see like he's he's the young uh ensign you know he feels bad about it but the lieutenant just you know keeps berating him until he you know shuts up uh so like not not to say that he is innocent but the 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 one that she like really brutalizes well he's the one that killed her baby yes yes he is the uh you know and he he says that it was an accident and i i believe him but it doesn't change the horror of of the the situation that's just that, he like, accidentally yeah. threw the baby against a wall, uh, against yeah. a wall. Uh, spoiler alert, this film features a very graphic infanticide sequence i mean we're well past spoilers but and uh this is and, sort of starts and know. a grand total of three rape scenes five, five rape well scenes? okay one of them has two rapes okay once, yeah but. no i i'm we see claire raped twice within the first 20 30 minutes of the movie and then the uh the the aboriginal woman who they capture uh, along the way gets raped by the sergeant and the the lieutenant. This was a number of attempted rape sequences. Yes. It, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. A- attempted. <sighs> More um, rapes than an HBO show. Yeah. Right. Um. It. That being said, you know, it, it, they're absolutely brutal and. Uh, yeah. Uh, drawn out too. Like, drawn we're not, out. Yeah. We're not talking irreversible drawn out, but it makes you it makes you sit in it. They're it's, less clinical than irreversible, which arguably makes them harder to sit through. Because you are with Claire while yeah, she's being raped. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's close on her face. I started out this film pretty hungry, and by the opening title card, I was I was not hungry. <laughs> like from during the film at all. Like I was I was pretty nauseated by a number yeah, of Yeah, a lot sequences. of it a like, lot of it is quite difficult mm-hmm. to watch. They, I, I like the film director a lot. goes out, she goes out of her way to put you in her position. Well, that's the it thing we're we're getting we're getting rape scenes treated from a woman's perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, when most of the time you see rape scenes in movies, it's you know, there's a man behind the camera. And and in this it's you know, it it feels like there's a, a very different perspective and it doesn't shy away from it. It's like you're gonna sit here and you're gonna watch this yeah yeah the film goes very far out of its way to remove like any veneer of a male gaze i salute the hell out of that uh speaking of uh the the literal of a literal male gaze uh one of the first uh i think it's the second scene in the film when she sings to the soldiers it's immediately uncomfortable because you have this this room full of of soldiers who are 
you know, likely far from home. Drunk, uh, well, we know very far from, from home. home. And they and are drunk and drunk and bored and, and bored horny. and extremely horny. Yeah. And they put this poor woman like into this room with all these these men sitting in chairs staring at her. Well, they call her while she's saying they call her the nightingale, you know, like it's like a caged bird. You know, she's not physically in a cage but by being owned by this man because she's a convict so he's essentially she's essentially his slave you know she is in a cage yes uh and so the the the, that's why the film is called the nightingale Nightingale. it's it's about her her breaking her shackles Mm -hmm. we get a number of shots and at this point like we don't we haven't been fully introduced to our antagonists and we don't know the roles of each of them the camera um cuts to a number of soldiers reactions and they're mostly like lecherous like leering and very you know repulsive like expressions and then we cut to the officer and he has a look of like romantic love and without the knowledge we have of him in that scene we think like oh well he's still a shitty guy but like he's potentially less shitty and boy was that it was was i incorrect nope, about that is, yeah. that belief he, he is, is literally the worst, the worst. I, literally I the didn't worst. quite like, read it like that you like, know well, just it's because like, I we get it. her face a lot and oh, she does not well like i say like i don't you we see it as like a romantic love but like still bad and even then like i still saw it as uncomfortable and like oh but like well, yeah, I there's see this, a, like him like like lecherously leering at her it's like almost seems to be there's a t- there's a um, yeah. and it's it's a yeah. lie and it's a it's a very effective one. Well, like it's, the subversion it's, is well, immediate. I think it, it's affectionate for as long as she is being what he, he wants, wants her, her to, be. to be. Yeah, but as soon as as soon as he anything to the contrary is suggested, uh, he takes it so personally that it becomes like a a rage trigger for him. You know. Well, and I think it's partially a sleight of hand of juxtaposition. Sure. Um, you know, she doesn't seem into it from the beginning oh she has a husband the thing right before it is we see uh one of the soldiers you know vulgarly like flicking his tongue at her you know gesturing what he wanted to do and in comparison uh what he did right after doesn't seem that bad until we get to see them alone right and we get to see Do we have to how see? drastic well right like the situation that's, really that's is. the thing is like how many times does he save is the wrong word but like shoo off the other soldiers who are like eh come here baby you know mm-hmm. like so Ward, he's yeah right you know and he he's like smacking people and being like get out of here and so so you start to think it's like okay well he's obviously kind of weird and creepy but like maybe he's not one of the bad ones and then oh my god Uh, he's the worst worst one one. yeah he's yeah it's a it's a nice it's a nice little sleight of hand thing uh i had i had a hard time from the beginning of the film determining who the villain was going to be until they showed up to her house i mean to be totally honest before the scene with her singing i didn't know anything about this movie going other than it was pure period piece i was half expecting them to like there to be a supernatural force or something i didn't i didn't even know this movie didn't have that and you know we picked it for a horror film i was expecting something more akin to maybe the witch or something and like there to be a ghost because like the the the, well i mean i don't know the title nightingale to me conjures like a a ghostly sort of and i mean it's the second film from the director of the the babadook Babadook. so yeah no i i was i was expecting i went in for that and the first sequence we see with the soldiers is like a fairly standard thing where like the sergeant figure is like cussing out the, the yeah the other soldiers and it's almost endearing in that like the that military fashion and like he just he he calls him a bunch of cunts and you know the the (laughs) officer comes in and you know tells him off and tells him that he looks filthy as well it's like the soldier y'all look filthy and he's like yeah but you do too like shut the fuck up like says the officer it's like go clean your boots and brush off your coat you look like shite too yeah and it's it's almost a fun sequence it's hard to see it as fun looking back at it because we know who they like we that who they truly are is revealed to us but i was almost expecting like them to be like 
protagonistic characters like at that point i mean and it's, it's that nice. is still immediately cut out from under itself and it, it's a i mean they're still central characters but yeah I, I get what you're saying it's it's nice to start with a little bit of of levity and lightheartedness to then just rip all of that away from you uh for most of the film this is probably a a thematic thing that doesn't necessarily need to be pointed out but they you know they keep making a big deal the sergeant especially calling the aboriginal people you know savages he tells the 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 boy the boy like they they eat young boys like you they eat kids like you and it's like all of the Aboriginal characters we see are by far the most civilized people in, well, in the, and, fu- in the and fucking film. They, they continually call the Aboriginal people boys, yeah. while they call the actual boy a young man. You right. know, like, mm-hmm. it's that talking down to... And, yeah, it's the dehumanization. And that's, that's one of the things, you know, uh, at the beginning, the colonialists don't seem too aggressively bad, but that's because the film isn't immediately looking at them from the indigenous perspective. Right. Well, there is no know? indigenous perspective until after, you know, she's really set out on her quest. It's so exactly. insulated to and their... Hawkins is introduced. It's it's so insulated to their their little colony community that there's, that there's not the outside perspective until she gets outside of that. But I just love that, like, the sergeant is threatening the little boy by saying these blacks, they, they eat little kids when it's like... Like, before this, he has taken part in the murder of a child, and then that boy who he's threatening is murdered by the lieutenant later, and it's like, oh, well, you don't have to worry about us. It's those others that are the danger to children. And it's like, no, it is, it is you. You are the danger to the children. Yeah. Like, he's just an active hurricane. He's, like, I, everywhere he goes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I couldn't help but seeing parallels to Heart of Darkness or, you know, if we want to say oh, no, po- or a- apocalypse now you know a lot of that is because like most of my study of uh imperial colonialism is in africa and like the belgian congo specifically i had a whole semester in college about the shit that was done in the belgian congo and so you know i'm naturally kind of drawn to look for that sort of thing but i i think that there's there's some parallels parallels in the sense that like the heart of darkness is it's not the uncivil or the jungle it's it is like the heart of of these horrible cruel mm-hmm. people you know yeah. the westerners well, the so-called the so-called a, civilized we have a conversation about it in the film where uh billy is talking to claire about his own society and what they do when with their own people who have those like bad spirits inside of them and she asks him what do you do and he says well we we speak with them we pull them aside we hold like a, a ceremony for them you know we we do all these things he says, well what if those things do not work and he said what do you do with them then he says we don't do anything we, we kill them we kill them. like yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, those people are a threat to like our, our 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 own society like they they die too like they're a threat to to the peace that we have made and yeah. then bad spirit and then, dies like that and, it's very binary and i appreciated and that inversely with the Western society, those people are allowed to Rise not only and live, but right to succeed. Mm-hmm. That, the, that the the Western system is built for those people to for be sociopaths off. by sociopaths. Right. Exactly. I loved that scene, especially because like it happens at the end after you know she's had her confrontation with the lieutenant, and it feels sort of like the film is wrapping up. It's like okay, she's not going to take the path of vengeance. She's going to walk the high ground. She's going to turn the other cheek she's gonna do what would be considered you know the good christian thing to do and he's like he's like fuck no we don't let those people get into higher stations people that evil we kill them and so he goes and kills the dude (laughs) i think the turning point for him was learning that his whole family his tribe murdered his his tribe has been killed and so his experience began reflecting claire's because in a lot of respects he probably felt like he was already dead yeah. as well, you know? Right, he, this had, whole, he had nothing. Yeah, anymore, he had nothing. Just like her. And so he set out towards vengeance for that. And, you know, it was, since it connected with Claire, it's good for both of them. But I think he might have done that regardless. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, well, he he certainly does it selfishly. He doesn't... 
he doesn't like wake her up and be like, I'm going to go off and kill those two. Now, you know, he leaves in the night while she's asleep. She wakes up. He's mm-hmm. not there and knows where yeah, he's jokes gone. on him. She can't sleep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> one juxtaposition I wanted to talk about a little bit further as well is throughout the film, Claire references her connection with the nightingale Mm -hmm. and billy references his connection with the blackbird thank you i'm glad i was gonna bring that up i feel like that's a good bit of foil to each character i'm not a bird expert so i can't really say the particular differences between nightingales and blackbirds well what he is basically a parrot is what he's talking about yeah what he calls a blackbird is is a bird that is black it's a black parrot basically like again not a uh ornithologist but it is yeah it's not even a a, a blackbird i mean it's just a bird that is black the bird that he identifies with that he points out and says that's me that's what i'm named for the blackbird when it sort of guides her to him later, we see the bird up close and we hear its call and he imitates its call multiple times. In, in, They're you know, literally birds of a feather. Yes, but also different. They're not yes. exactly the same. The blackbird that he is talking about, you know, it has its own special song or call, you know, that he imitates that is more connected to his culture and who he is. And a nightingale is, you know, a very sweetly singing, pretty songbird. We hear the nightingale's call every night when she's asleep. I'm sure it's in her dreams. I don't think they're nightingales native to Tasmania, but that they find common ground despite the fact that they are so that they are still so different. Well, I I think you just touched on a really important point. Uh, You said that you don't believe nightingales are native to Tasmania. Right, well, because she's not exactly. exactly. Well, that's why I'm saying is we, right. she hears the call yeah. of the nightingale, but that it's it's a uh, it's a dream. But right, she's she's out of her element. You know, she's not from this place, but he is. You know, and he has that special connection with this like indigenous bird. The blackbird is his nightingale. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's, it's the bird of his land, much like the nightingale is the bird of her land. Exactly, um, and they're similar but different. different yeah. The whole you know, and, and again, like that is that is the root of sympathy. You know, I suffer with you, and so they're both given opportunities to suffer with each other. And I I think I think that imagery is interestingly used i almost feel like it could have been fleshed out a little bit more in what way i'm curious uh well not in a heavy-handed spell it out kind of way but i think the symbolism of it is still a bit vague i mean she's called a nightingale at the beginning you know by the she sings throughout you know the course it's not that it's vague that it's connected to her the meaning of what the nightingale and blackbird imply it's vague. The nightingale is a is a caged songbird. I think Whereas, yeah, those themes are like well, yeah, like established. They maybe could have done more with it, but I I felt satisfied with it. I thought it was just enough. I almost thought the parrot appearing to her and guiding her back to him. I almost felt like it was heavy handed, but. I didn't? No, because it, it could also just be circumstantial. Like, like she saw a bird that has been already established to be native of that area. Sure. You're, you're going to see those types of birds, and that she just happened to wander across the path. Right. Well, she, I mean, she clearly recognized that bird as a sign. She, Of course. Yeah, she because followed. Those, those, and right. In nature, those events occur. Sure. Like, it's, it's, it's pareidolia, you know, like, whether they actually have any context or not is really up to you. But right, she sees know, it as a sign. Was it a sign? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. It but whether that her... thing could have could have happened in this world or not is uh, no, sure, plenty sure, fine. Sure, yeah. sure. No, well, I, I and for you know yeah. the, the 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 symbolism of but birds it is almost in too much. general. I agree. It, it feels is like you know the 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 hope of flying free. Right. You know, is, and that's something both of them dream of in a lot of respects you know without the the oppressive nature of their situation that definitely is implied in the movie i just think birds are pretty common symbols i don't know i i just think at times it can be construed as a little vague that's just my opinion though 
think, you know, it's, it's pretty specific to Nightingales, you know, for her character. I, yeah, I think, like, all the thematic points hit. I think it's it's enough that I get what the film is trying to say by the end. I think it's... I think it says it. I think yeah. it's... Yeah, I think it says it, and it's subtle. I don't think it's too vague, I don't think I would can really say. Mm. Yeah, say I, w- I wouldn't see how all. how like what w- th- what would you have wanted like it, it it to do or it to add in to better establish that theme. I feel like I would have loved to see a bit more of it reflecting their hopes of flying free in some respects. I mean, I don't think she starts to really relate herself so much to a bird until she is traveling with Billy. Because he's named for that bird. His real name is the aboriginal name for that bird. So he is very deeply connected to it and is explaining that to her and pointing out, you know, I'm that's me. I'm the blackbird, you know. And I think that as she starts to see that she has more in common with him than she thought, she finds that same parallel. You're the blackbird. I'm the nightingale. She finds that point of relation with him because of his attachment to that symbol of the bird. Yeah. I mean, the film is called The Nightingale, so when we see her called a nightingale at the very beginning, it's like, oh, that's why. Yeah, she's a, she's gonna, a slave and she sings like she's a caged like bird. There, there's like gonna, it's, it's very, yeah. There's going to be some significance, but I don't think that she... Nightingales are caged I don't, I don't think so. that she finds that significance for herself until she, well, until I, she I, meets Well, she likes to be comfortable like, being I, a nightingale. I feel like the, the, the blackbird is much more emphasized throughout the movie until the the very end where she she even brings up the nightingale right in again. her confrontation you know, like, the only time the the nightingale aspect of it is brought up is very beginning and her confrontation i mean you the hear end. there's a an audio cue yeah the to, the the part with their dreams as well yeah because like, which, she's, which she's happens, lived as a nightingale all up until the circumstances of the film and we of a nightingale and we hear we hear the night nightingale uh we hear we hear the nightingale sing we hear its song every night when they settle down to camp when she's yeah. sleeping uh, so I think that there's in every enough, dream sequence it's reinforced and I think that there's that there's enough of of that auditory cue to remind us of it enough that that it it feels I mean, she's certainly not going to sing like when it she's feels in the woods thematically and, you know, relevant, dealing with all of you know? all of that that those circumstances it would be out but of I mean, character but I mean she, she but she does that well, one she, that one night she does at the very end. No, oh, she okay. no, she does uh, one of the nights when she's camping with Billy. You know, he starts singing, and she says, "You know, shut up that racket; it's ugly or whatever." Then they have their conversation, and you know, he tells oh, her what the right. what the white what the white <sighs> man has taken from him, yeah. and uh, they even, yes, they even do establish it there, right? Yeah. And, and, then, and and that scene ends with her singing a song in Gaelic. There is that thematic through line right i guess to capstone the bird stuff is uh this movie is quite literal in you know the events it portrays to a harrowing degree the symbolism and imagery that were there and the more interpretive aspects of it were so rich to me that i almost wanted more i think that's what i mostly okay meant by that sure okay it was enough for me but i don't think that's wrong i think they could have done more and it wouldn't have been heavy-handed mm-hmm. do you guys want to go ahead and rate this yeah Sure. Um, okay, I'll start and we can go around. I thought this was great. I had, you know, there's there's couple little minor gripes, uh, but ultimately very small things. I don't know if I want to necessarily watch this movie again anytime soon because it's such an emotional journey or... <sighs> event i don't know what exactly uh how to how to address that um but man it's it's damn good storytelling and the acting is phenomenal i loved it up and down uh four and a half out of five for me yeah well i'm gonna mirror a lot of that i had a few minor critiques but overall i thought it was a pretty incredible movie um i'm gonna give it a four and a half out as well bring us home cleveman i saw it as a as a masterclass film i i'd give it a five uh personally 
All right. Well, that's a strong 4.7 out of 5 for uh, The Nightingale. Uh, very, very, very good movie. It's on Hulu right now. Uh, go check it out if uh, you've sat through all of this and don't care about spoilers, obviously. Uh, next week is to be decided. There are some circumstances that we don't quite know uh, how they're going to shake out yet. We will have an episode next week. It's a surprise. It'll be a surprise episode. Uh, and next week is Thanksgiving as well. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be bringing you a nice, big old, fat, stuff-and-filled episode next week. Um, and you'll just have to stay tuned and see what it is. Why don't we get a word from our sponsor? This episode was brought to you by colonialism and how much it sucks. <laughs> Fuck colonialism, and there you go. That's that's uh, that's our sponsor. Our sponsor is Fuck Colonialism. Now, I think that that's a product that we can all get behind. And if fuck, you can't, fuck you. <laughs> fuck colonialism, and if you don't acknowledge that Western culture is built upon the bones of millions, <laughs> then you're a piece of shit. I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> if you're not one of those people and you like the show, then please uh, feel free to leave us a five-star uh, rating and a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Help us grow in the numbers. Share an episode that you like with your friends. Maybe this episode, maybe a different episode. We got a nice long back catalog to check out if you haven't heard those. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod and at Letterboxd.com slash PodPeoplePod for a list of all the films we've talked about on our show, along with our average ratings and links to the corresponding episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. I'm occasionally tweeting for Light Arc Studio. We're uh, giving you all some information on It Stares Back. Uh, please check it out. It's on Steam. It's our horror indie game that we've been working on for a couple of years now. Join us on our Discord as well as we continue to uh, update our process. That's right. You can find uh, the link to our Discord at uh, that Twitter handle or at lightarkstudio.com and scoop up It Stares Back from Steam while it's hot, while we're in early access. It's only six US dollars at the time of recording, but it won't be that way forever. So uh, scoop it up while you have a chance and uh, let us know what you think. We really appreciate it. Hope you're having a good November, staying warm, gearing up for the turkey day, and uh, yeah, we'll see you then. Gobble, gobble. Gobble.